Section 17 of The Logic of Vegetarianism by Henry S. Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 17. Doubts and Difficulties. We have next to deal with a special class of irregular foemen, the guerrillas and bashi bazooks of the flesh-eater's army, whose game it is to waylay and harass the vegetarian movement by a small fire of doubts and difficulties as to what the future has in store. The alarmists they are, whose apprehensive minds are concerned not so much with the rightness or wrongness of the system, as with the anxieties of what would happen if the triumph of vegetarianism should be won, and so gloomy are their forebodings as to suggest a probable collapse of the whole fabric of society, if once that great prop and mainstay of civilization, the habit of eating dead animals, should be disloyally undermined. Now, at the outset, it should be said that the well-worn method of trying to discredit new principles by wanting to know beforehand exactly how everything will happen, is in many cases a foolish and fraudulent device. There are, of course, certain quite legitimate questions, as to the general scope and practicability of any proposed reform, to which reformers must be prepared to make answer before they can expect to prevail and to such questions vegetarians have a convincing reply. But when the Inquisition takes the form of asking for a present explanation of future developments, and for a foreknowledge of details which, in the very nature of things, are unknowable, then it is well to make it clear from the beginning that we will be no parties to any such waste of time. Reasonable foresight is one thing, the gift of prophecy is another, and it is in no wise the duty of those who are working towards a more or less distant goal to give a precise geometrical survey of their promised land. In the case of vegetarianism, the answerable doubts and difficulties fall mostly under two heads, relating first to the alarming discomforts which the loss of flesh-food would entail upon mankind, and secondly, to the not less grievous straits to which the animals themselves would be reduced under so misguided a regime. Let us take the selfish view first, as containing, perhaps, a modicum of real feeling, which can scarcely be found in that suspicious concern for the animals. There are some folk, it seems, over whose troubled minds there really does hang, like a nightmare, the alarmist's vision of a world impoverished and dismantled by vegetarianism a world sans leather, sans bone, sans soap, sans candles, sans manure, sans everything. Alarmist. But this is mere trifling. It is idle to talk of the humanity, the wholesomeness, the economy of a vegetarian diet, while you are overlooking the disastrous consequences that stare you in the face. We may perhaps be able, as you say, to exist without meat, but what could we do without leather and the other animal substances on which civilization depends? Vegetarian. Well, I suppose we should take care not to be without them, or something just as good. Alarmist. How could we do that, if there were no carcasses to supply us with hides, bone, and tallow? In your devotion to an ideal you seem to forget that if your principles prevailed we might wake up some fine morning to find ourselves confronted by the dislocation of the boot trade, the bookbinding trade, the harness trade, and a hundred others. Thousands of men and women would be thrown out of work, and we should soon have no boots, no portmanteaus, no soap, no candles, no knife-handles. It would be a downright relapse into barbarism.' 
vegetarian. But, happily, your lurid picture is based on the false assumption that vegetarianism would come about by a sudden and instantaneous conversion. That is not the way in which great changes are accomplished. They are a matter of years and centuries, not of days and weeks, and the fine morning you spoke of will be a gradual morning of very extensive duration. Alarmist. Well, but that is only putting off the evil day. It would come at last. Vegetarian. But would not something else have also been coming meantime? Would not the demand, in this as in all other usages of life, have produced the corresponding supply? There is no need, however, to speculate as to what would happen, because it is happening already. Alarmist. What is happening? Vegetarian. The articles which you named are being supplied in substitutes from the vegetable kingdom. Slowly and tentatively at first, as is inevitable while vegetarians are so few in numbers, but vegetarian boots, vegetarian soap, and vegetarian candles are now in the market, and as the movement spreads, the demand will be proportionately greater. So pray do not alarm yourself about the dislocation of trade, for the whole change, great as it is, will come to pass imperceptibly, and will never bring a moment's inconvenience to anyone. Mankind, as it happens, is not so helpless, so uninventive, so literally hidebound, as to let its progress be dependent on skins, bones, and guts. There is a good deal of unintended humour, too, in some of the difficulties that are alleged. Thus, vegetarians are often asked how the land could be fertilised without the use of animal manure, it being apparently forgotten that ex nihilo nihil feet, and animals can only return to the land in manure what they have previously taken from it in food, also that by our absurdly wasteful drainage system we are all the time poisoning our seas and rivers with a mass of sewage which would be amply sufficient for the soil. Let the land, says Mr. William Hoyle, only receive, in the shape of manure, the sewage and refuse from the teeming population of our towns and villages, in addition to the other means which are applied to it, and let it be properly drained and cultivated, and there is hardly any limit to its power of production. But it is superfluous to spend time in answering such questions, for their silliness is far in excess of their honesty. For years the opponents of vegetarianism in the press has been asking, What should we do without leather? etc. Yet, as soon as the substitutes for these articles began to be exhibited at the annual vegetarian congress, the note was changed, and the reporters remarked that the exhibition was not of much interest, until we found the London correspondent of a big provincial paper actually complaining that the crusade against meat of every kind, and even against leather, at this exhibition they have boots and shoes made of imitation leather, is carrying the reform a little too far. Our critics are hard to satisfy. We are going a little too far if we produce a substitute for leather. If we do not produce one, we are not going far enough. And now, with all becoming gravity, we turn to the second branch of our subject, the disinterested inquiry as to what would become of the animals if we ceased to kill them for food. If the life of animals, says Dr. Paul Carus, had to be regarded as sacred as human life, there can be no doubt about it that whole industries would be destroyed, and human civilization would at once drop down to a very primitive condition. Many millions would starve, 
and large cities would disappear from the face of the earth. But the brute creation would suffer too. There might be a temporary increase of brute life, but certainly not of happiness. Cattle would only be raised for draught oxen and milk kine, and they would not die the sudden death at the hands of the butcher, but slowly of old age or by disease. A pathetic picture, indeed. It does not for a moment occur to this sapient prophet of disaster that the adoption of vegetarianism will necessarily be gradual, and further that vegetarians do not hold the life of animals to be as sacred as human life. To critics who do not even ascertain what the system means before they reject it, and who ignore all consideration of the degrees and relative sacredness of the various forms of life, vegetarianism must naturally seem to be a confused jumble of thought, the confusion, in reality, being altogether on their own side. Alarmist. There is another aspect of this question, and a very grave one. If flesh-eating were abolished, what would become of the animals? Vegetarian. Yes, let us talk about that fearful contingency. You think they would be thrown out of employment, so to speak, would find their careers cut short, or rather left long? Alarmist. It is no joking matter. Would they not run wild in ever-increasing numbers, and perhaps overrun the land, or, if food failed them, lie dead and dying about our roadways and suburbs? Vegetarian. Before I relieve your anxiety on this point, may I just remark that this second difficulty seems to counterbalance the former one? If every suburban householder is likely to have a dead ox against his garden gate, we evidently need not fear the failure of the leather and tallow trade. But once again you are mistaken. You have overlooked the fact that the breeding of animals is not free and unrestricted, but is kept within certain limits, and carefully regulated by man so that if the demand for butcher's meat should gradually decline, there would be no more alarming result than a corresponding gradual decline in the supply from the breeder. Alarmist. Well, I don't know. I sadly doubt whether things would balance themselves so comfortably. Vegetarian. Ah, you think that some neglected old porker, like Scott's last minstrel, would be left out in the cold. For well a day their date was fled, his tuneful brethren all were dead, and he, neglected and oppressed, longed to be with them and at rest. But no, for look at the case of the donkey. We do not, knowingly, eat donkeys, yet a dead donkey is proverbially a rare sight. Nor are we overrun with donkeys, at least not in the sense referred to. Alarmist. Yet I understand that in India, where there is a reluctance to kill animals, they are often in wretched plight. Vegetarian. True. But we were talking not of killing animals, but of eating them. Vegetarianism is not Brahmanism. We would kill when necessary, whether for our own sake or the animals, but we would not breed them in vast numbers in order to kill, nor kill them in order to eat. Surely the distinction is a clear one? The attitude of vegetarians towards this subject is indeed plain enough for those who wish to understand it. Regarding the slaughter of animals for food as cruel and unnecessary, they advocate its discontinuance, a process which, if it comes about at all, will, as I have shown, be a gradual one, and will at no point cause any sudden disruption of existing conditions. But this does not commit them to the absurd belief that animal life, in all its various grades, is absolutely sacred and inviolable. 
must we not suspect that the apologists of flesh-eating who make these childish alarums and excursions are fain to do so from some inner conviction of the weakness of their own case? End of section 17